Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. John chapter 11 is where we're going to be uh, today. And uh, we're coming towards the end of our series uh, called The Gospels. And, and what we've wanted to kind of trace out through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, specifically are the, the moments in which Jesus pursued people who were in need of him. Uh, moments of, of where people were living life, whether it was for themselves or found themselves in circumstances or situations where they're in dire need of something external to come in and radically change their situation. Um, and so we, we saw Jesus interacting with tax collectors who were pursuing personal wealth and gain, kind of health, wealth, and prosperity, and seeing that, that those things really weren't uh, meeting up to uh, what they promised to do, um, kind of the satisfaction that we long for in, in worldly possessions. We're just not going to find uh, what we're wanting out of those things. And so we see Zacchaeus basically come in and, and say, I, I don't want that stuff anymore. I want something new. I want something fresh. I want something uh, to take over and, and fulfill the satisfactions that I'm longing for that I was designed to experience. And so we see Zacchaeus kind of have this, this switch in his life of moving away from robbing people of, of their money and their wealth and, and gaining for himself. And then now meeting Jesus and saying, he's sufficient, he's all that I need, and so I'm now able to be generous and give of all that I have to those who I took from them, and, and we see a heart change there. Uh, we saw the woman at the well where Jesus goes to her, and, and this is a woman who pretty much has a reputation as, as a whore in her city, uh, just a woman who, who has slept around and has five different husbands, and the guy that she's currently living with, is she's basically exchanging sex for rent, and so this was kind of the, the lifestyle that she's chosen and is living in, and, and Jesus comes in and says, uh, th this, this earthly water that you're looking for is not going to satisfy the soul. You need living water, eternal water that will satisfy the soul forever. And, and I can provide that because I provide myself to you. And we see her where she's kind of gone into isolation away from society. Now, after meeting Jesus, runs back into society to share and tell people this is what Christ has done. This is who he is. Look at, meet this man who has told me all that I've ever done and has forgiven me and has provided for me satisfaction in him and him Alone, And then last week we, we talked about the disciples, uh, Jesus making them get in this boat and then going across the water to the other side as Jesus goes up on this mountaintop to pray. And as the disciples are heading over in the boat, a storm comes and, and they find themselves kind of in a, a life or death situation in which the, the it literally says that they're making way painfully in the water. So there's a storm that's throwing them around the boat. This is not pleasant. This is not an enjoyable cruise for them to get to the other side. And we see Jesus kind of coming in, walking on the water. They're terrified because they think they see some type of water spirit. And Jesus says, no, don't be afraid. It is I. Literally, he says, I am. It's me. I'm God. 
I'm here and I'm entering into your storm. I'm coming into the place where you're terrified. And not only that, but I'm going to calm the seas that are around you. I'm going to provide peace and comfort amidst the storm. And the beautiful thing is not only does he provide peace and comfort amidst the storm, but he gets in the boat with them. And so we know that we have a Savior who doesn't just come in and provide satisfaction and provide peace and provide calming in our storms, but is, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always to the end. And so this is what we've been seeing Jesus do throughout the Gospels. And today we're going to see kind of his signs and miracles hit the climax as he raises this man, Lazarus, from the grave, from the dead, and the implications that that has not only for Lazarus, but also for the people who were around him um, at this funeral service for this guy who's been dead for four days. And we're going to be looking at this passage. And, and, and for those of you who are going to join us um, for Easter in two weeks, um, bless your heart, you're going to get the same sermon. I mean, because this is a guy being raised from the dead. And so there's so many things that parallel in the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead and also Jesus being raised from the dead. And so if you don't catch it today, maybe you'll catch it in two weeks uh, when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter, the greatest um, event that has ever happened in all of our history. And so again, John chapter 11 is where we're going to be today. And we've got 44 verses uh, that we're going to walk through. And for some of you that might uh, make you scared. Like, are we going to get out on time? Um, I promise uh, we will get out on time, but there's so much good truth to see in this um, that, that reveals Jesus as God. Um, and, and that's what we want to see. We want to see Jesus as God, but we're also seeing Jesus as God intervening into um, the dark places of our world intervening into the, the areas in our, in our life that we have absolutely no hope apart from a miraculous work of Jesus coming in and doing what he does best. And so I'm going to pray before we jump into this because we're going to hit it kind of uh, verse by verse and then pause as we go through verses. Um, so let me pray before we actually jump into this. Father, we thank you so much for your love and uh, ultimately, God, your grace that you pour out. Uh, God, we do not deserve it. There's nothing that any one of us in this room could do to earn your favor, to earn your love, to earn your mercy. But God, you pour it out on us because it's who you are. God, we see this story today um, with Lazarus and Jesus pursuing Lazarus, Jesus coming to Lazarus and doing something that Lazarus himself could not do because he is a dead man. And God, what we want, what we're praying for during this message is that your Holy Spirit would be here to um, enlighten the eyes of our hearts, to be able to see your truth, and in seeing your truth, that it would lead us to a place where we treasure you for who you are. And in treasuring you, God, it transforms us to be more and more like your son, Jesus. And so God, help us to learn more about the gospel today. Help us to understand the depths of it. Help us to know it in an intimate way that produces an expression of our hearts to honor and worship and glorify you in all of our lives. God, be with us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
Verse 1, John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And I want to pause here for a moment. What, what is the main mission and goal of God in what he wants to accomplish in the world? Like the main mission and goal of God is not for, for you and I to have our problems fixed and solved. Like, that's not the main mission of God. Like, the main mission of God is not man-centric in order for us to get, but rather it's His glory to be known. Because in, his, in, in the place of His glory being known is where we receive the utmost satisfaction that we're so longing for. It's where we receive the utmost joy that we're so longing for because we're getting him, not just his stuff. See, so many times people focus on sermons in which we're going to preach a message to help you figure out the issues in your life, to help you figure out how to, to pay bills, to help you figure out how to have a better relationship, to help you figure out all the different things in life that cause you pain and suffering. But in doing that, we can actually miss the fact that what you need most is Jesus himself that you need God's presence in your life, that you need the transforming presence of God's grace coming in and radically changing your situation that also moves towards changing the circumstances that are around you. Because the more we're shaped and molded to be like Christ changes and matures the way that we interact with the world, the way that we steward possessions around us in order to ultimately glorify him in all that he does. And so again, it's the plan of God is to get glory. And the way that he's going to do that is by bringing dead people back to life. And I'm not just talking about physically dead people, but I'm also talking about spiritually dead people. Like this is what God's entire mission is, is because sin causes people to be spiritually dead and because sin has entered into the world, it's robbing God of the glory that he deserves because he's made us in his image to reflect the glory that is his. His whole mission is to change and transform people from sinners to saints in order to begin reflecting his image rightly to begin uh, giving and ascribing glory to him because it's expressing worship to him is in the way in which we receive joy. God's not in the business of just making bad people good. He's in the business of making dead people alive. And we're gonna be fleshing that out more in a minute, but I just had to mention that again here right out of the gate that this isn't a message to fix circumstances. This is a message to get us to God's glory. The reason we gather as saints, the reason we study and search the scriptures, the reason why we pray, the reason why we serve those around us, the reason why we proclaim the gospel is first and foremost for the glory of God, for the Son of God to be glorified in all of it. Not us, but him. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Remember that point, um, for that's going to be important, that Jesus stayed two days longer before departing to, to Lazarus. 
in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. There it is. Why did Jesus stay two days longer was so that what Jesus is actually going to go and accomplish in raising Lazarus from the grave was for the disciples' belief, so that they may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And I want to pause here for a minute. Um, We've got to do some work here because this is, again, one of those passages where we repeatedly see the disciples just get it wrong. Um, And that's always, again, that's always going to be an encouraging uh, thing for us as disciples because how often do we get it wrong? Like how often does Jesus say, this is what I'm going to do? And we say, are you sure? Like, I don't know if you thought this through. Like, we've been praying on our end. We've been planning on our end. We think things should go this way. And Jesus says, no, this is what I'm going to actually accomplish. And so there's so many times where we try to hijack the will of God, thinking that we know better than God does himself. And so it's actually a rest for us to see in Scripture that God includes in the inspired word the fact that they continue to mess it up, but God's going to ultimately do what he wants to accomplish, even amidst the fact that we can get it wrong at times. That is such a comfort for me as we are planting this church uh, to know that there are going to be times where the district church does things that everyone else is going to be like, why did we do that? And there's going to be times where we, where we radically mess it up, but we're trusting in a God who is sovereign and faithful to advance the gospel how he sees fit. And we're trusting in that. We're resting in the fact that he is going to accomplish it, even though we may stumble upon the process of actually getting it done. So the first thing I want you to see here in, in this kind of section is that Jesus needs to get to Judea and the disciples try to prohibit him because they're fearful of his death. Now, that's a legitimate fear. Like, you don't want your best friend to get murdered, right? Like, if you've been hanging out with your best friend for a couple of years and he says, I need to go to this area and the last time that we were there, people were trying to break into our home, people were trying to shoot us, people were trying to stone us, people were trying to, to rob us of our vehicles, like, whatever it is. And, we, and, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, yeah, let's, let's go back and hang out there. There's some people that we want to go and visit. You'd be like, I think I need to advise you not to do that. Like, the disciples are just being friends to Jesus here. They're just saying, Jesus, uh, like, we, we, we trust you. We think you're God, um, but at the same time, this is stupid. Like, why do you want to go into a place where people are legitimately trying to murder you? And then Jesus kind of gives them this, this story about walking in the day and at night. And his, his point is to be in the light means you are walking in the day and can see clearly what is going on around you. And so if we remember in John chapter 1, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. 
those who walk in the light, those who have Christ in them can see clearly exactly where they are to go, what they are to do, what they are to say, what they are to accomplish. And so what Jesus is exposing to them here is, I am the light. And those who are in the light can see clearly where they need to be. And where we need to be is in Judea in order to help raise this guy from the dead so that those around them may believe. And kind of another thing that he's saying there is, yeah, there's going to be people there that are walking in the darkness. They're walking in night. They're stumbling because they don't have the light in them. And so what better place for the light to go where there's darkness? Like there's so many times people ask us, like, why are you planning a church um, in, in a certain area where, where there's not necessarily as many churches or, or there might be um, confrontations am, amongst races and people groups? And, and we say, what better place to be? What better place to go into? Like, we don't want to plant a church in an area where everybody's Pleasantville, right? And I'm not saying that in an area like that, that there's people who need Jesus, I mean, we're from the Bible Belt, Nashville, Tennessee. Like, you're, you're a Christian because you were born in Tennessee. Like, like we're, we're from an area where everybody is Christian because it's rooted in the culture around them. And so the difficulty there is helping people believe that they're not believers. Helping people actually see the fact that just because you've been raised in the church doesn't mean you know Jesus. So there's a darkness there that we'll actually see at the end of this message. There's a darkness there that's just covered with Christianity, but finds itself to actually not be true and to not know the gospel and to not know Jesus. But at the same time, we wanted to go into an area that we see racial tensions, that we see socioeconomic tensions, that we see areas where where people don't have as much access to the gospel and begin sharing it. We want to pursue darkness because that's where the light wants to go. And so what Jesus is ultimately telling them is, I know that there's people there that want to murder me, that want to kill me, but follow me, trust me. I know where to walk and I know where to go and when to be there. The second thing Jesus mentioned was that Lazarus has fallen asleep and and he's going to awaken him. And the disciples literally take that to mean that he's asleep. They're like, look, if he's asleep, we don't need to be his alarm clock. Like we, we don't need to go over there and like physically just wake him up. Like he'll, he'll recover on his own. And what Jesus is saying here is that he's just laying it out. Look, Lazarus is actually dead. All right. So many times in scriptures, Jesus says something and we're quick as, as humans to say, this is what he means. Or this is what I think he means. And, and, and oftentimes we need to kind of take a step back and say, what is Jesus really saying here? What is Jesus really getting at? And so this is kind of a warning for us when it comes to theology, when it comes to doctrines, when it comes to just believing people at their word. Like we need to take some time and say, what is Jesus saying here in regards to whatever it is that we're studying or believing or trusting? We want to get back to what Jesus is accomplishing. And he goes on to say that the reason he let him die, the reason why he stayed there those additional two days was so that he would accomplish something for people to believe. So let's look at it. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. The reference to four days here and in verse 39 later 
is just to show literally Lazarus is dead. Like four days, there's no questions, all right? He, he's not in some like comatose state, um, and all of a sudden he just awoke. Like this wasn't he was sleeping for four days. Like no, this was he is literally dead. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, a lot of times people take that as kind of like a blame on Jesus. Like, Jesus, if you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. But this is actually um, Martha showing belief in Jesus, showing faith in Jesus of what he can actually accomplish. Here, Martha reveals that she's Um, that she's been paying attention to who Jesus is. Look at what it says in the next verse. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Here Martha reveals that she's been paying attention in class basically. She's been listening to the teachings of the resurrection. She's been listening to the teachings of Jesus and ultimately taking them to heart. Her faith is more informed than even the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are around her who don't believe in a resurrection. That was actually one of the big things that they had in charge against Jesus was the fact that he was telling them dead people are going to come back to life. That he was ultimately saying, if you kill me, I'm going to come back to life. And this is blasphemy in which they are accusing him of. And Martha is one who believes this, believes that God will actually accomplish this. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is Jesus giving a gospel proclamation. Jesus is saying that there's life for both those who have physically died as well as for those who are actually still alive. Like he's showing that there's, that there's two aspects to this spiritual life is that it's for those who have physically died and for those who also are physically alive. The point of Jesus' proclamation is that it's only by means of union with Christ, the risen Lord, through faith alone that believers come to experience this abundant life that he's talked about. This abundant life that he talked about in John 10. You see Jesus asking her, do you believe this? Do you believe in me? And she said to him in verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who's coming into the world. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Now remember, this is, this is Mary who will eventually anoint Jesus' feet with expensive ointment and wipe his feet with her hair. And, and that's actually the next chapter over, John chapter 12. Um, and at that point, Lazarus has already been risen from the grave. And so this is a moment in which when Jesus is coming to visit, now we can kind of get a picture of why Mary takes this expensive ointment and goes over and, and, and places it on Jesus' feet and then wipes his feet with her hair. Why is she taking something that, that is monetarily, physically expensive and pouring out is because she's experienced something that's spiritually awakened her. She's starting to look at the fact that things of this world do not compare into knowing Christ Jesus 
to knowing who he is, we're seeing the actual event that changes both her heart and her mind towards I can sacrifice things that I put hope in in this world. I can give up lesser things in order to experience the greater things of the gospel. That's what the whole season of Lent is, is meant to be that we've been talking about for the last several weeks is the fact that we sacrifice lesser things in this world. We put away things, whether it's watching TV, whether it's social media, whether it's shopping for non-essentials or whatever it looks like. We, we sacrifice those things in order to spend more time investing in our own hearts, investing in our own minds, the greater things of the gospel. Prayer, studying God's word, spending intimate time with Jesus. We want to do that because we're growing in our understanding that this world is not going to offer what we're looking for. This world is not going to offer what we hold in satisfaction. And what even happens in that story of, of her um, spreading the ointment on Jesus' feet is you have the disciples, you have Judas specifically saying, like having kind of a, a temper tantrum. Why in the world is she doing it? We could have taken that ointment and sold it for 300 uh, pieces of silver. We could, we could have used that money to, to help the poor. You know, Judas wasn't going to ultimately use that money to help the poor. Like Judas has been robbing from, like he's the treasurer kind of for the 12 disciples. He's, he's the one that's been holding the money bag this entire time. And what he's constantly doing is, is taking out for himself. And so he's seeing someone sacrifice something from the world in order to worship Jesus. And he's saying, no, 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 I need to hold on to that. I need that for myself. And we see that that's ultimately what Judas succumbs to and the end of his life as well. Let's pick it up in verse 29. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, this is the same phrase that Mary or that Martha used, but again, it's revealing her faith rather than blaming Jesus. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? One thing to mention here, and oftentimes um, when preaching on this passage, and, and I, I preach this as the main point a lot of times. The fact that Jesus kind of enters into this scene of a funeral um, and entering into this scene, he, he walks up to the people and sees the people mourning the loss of Lazarus, sees them weeping, sees them grieving, and Jesus enters into their grief. Um, this, is, I, this is a passage that I preach at, a lot of times at funerals that, that I officiate. Um, and, and it's kind of always a, I always have to kind of throw it out there as a disclaimer, like this is a passage in which a, a dead man comes back to life, and I'm not going to try that here. Um, but at the same time, I want you to ultimately see what Jesus is doing amidst this story, amidst this, um, this situation. Because at this point, doesn't Jesus know that he's going to raise Lazarus? 
Like, remember, like Jesus already said to the disciples, let us go to Judea. Lazarus has fallen asleep. Lazarus has died, but I'm going to bring him back to life so that people may believe. So when he's coming into this scene of this funeral and seeing everybody grieving, why doesn't he just run around and say, get your heads up, get your chins up? Like, this is a funeral right now, but I'm about to turn this into like a celebratory reception. We're about to have a party because I'm going to bring him back to life. Why doesn't Jesus come in and say, stop weeping, stop grieving. I'm here. I'm ready to take care of this. Why does he come in and also himself enter into being deeply moved, greatly troubled, and begin weeping? Because Jesus as our high priest, Jesus as our God, does not miss an opportunity to enter into and provide love and care for us. Regardless of circumstance, regardless of situation, regardless of of the fact that he knows he's going to bring us to the other side in which there's going to be rejoicing, there's going to be celebration, there's going to be thank you, Lord, you are awesome. Jesus knows he's going to do that and accomplish that, but he still takes the opportunity to enter into our sorrow, to enter into our pain and our struggles and say, I'm with you. I'm here. I'm near. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm going to weep with you. I'm going to mourn with you. I'm going to grieve with you because I want to experience that moment with you. Like so many times, like how many, when we go through circumstances, we don't want someone coming up to us and saying, hey, it's going to be fine tomorrow. It's going to be great tomorrow. No, we just want people to come in next to us and just grab us and just hold us and just hug us and maybe not even say anything, but just mourn and weep with us, right? Like we want to experience that. And we see that Jesus does that perfectly. Even knowing what he's about to accomplish, he he does not miss an opportunity to console and comfort, to enter into our pain and say, I'm here. Expressing his love and his care. He's not just a God who gets us through to the other side, but also cares for us in the midst of our journey. He's not a distant authority. He's near. He's right there with us. Not only does this reveal Jesus' care for us in our grieving campaign, but it also reveals Jesus' hatred towards death. Like the fact that it says that he was deeply moved and greatly troubled is the fact that this is a situation in which death is reigning in which death is in control. And what Jesus is coming to do in raising Lazarus from the grave is he's coming to not only proclaim to everyone around that, hey, um, I want you to believe in me. I want you to see what I'm capable of. But he's also proclaiming to death, your time is temporary. Your time is momentarily. Your time is limited. Because I have the power and authority to tell you when to stop. I mean, Jesus is the only person we know who has the authority to to tell dead people they're not allowed to be dead anymore. Right? Like, this is the God that we serve is he's able to come into a situation and say, you're sick? Nope, not anymore. There's a storm? Nope, not anymore. Calm waters. You're dead, physically dead? Nope, not anymore. You're spiritually dead? Nope, not anymore. Because he's our sovereign. He's God. He's I am, as he said, on the waters, getting them to the other side. If you don't believe me, let's see it play out here. 
Verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Does that sound familiar to any other stories that we've read in scripture? Seems like there's something coming up in a couple of weeks that sounds like that. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's going to be an older, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? This is a great point to be made here. Our, our salvation is not dependent upon the quality of our faith, but dependent upon the quality of our Savior. Like, do you remember, like, Martha's been nailing it the whole time, right? You are the Christ, the Son of God. I believe in you. I believe that you are the resurrection and life. Like, I believe that you are who you say you are. And so then when Jesus kind of, kind of brings, the, brings that to a, a front and kind of where the rubber meets the road and, and brings her to the tomb and says, roll the stone away, Martha's kind of like, are you sure, Jesus? Four days he's been in there. He's stinking. I don't think we should open this thing up. Like, there's a little bit of doubt here, right, in her faith. There's a little bit of Jesus, I don't know really kind of what you're trying to accomplish here, but you're at the funeral. We know he's dead. We're mourning and grieving him. So why do you need to open it up and show us him again? There's a little bit of, this is, again, comfort for us that we don't have to have it all figured out in order to be saved, in order to come to salvation, in order to know God intimately. We don't have to have all of our questions answered. Guys, like when, when I was saved, I had a thousand questions. And guess what? Today, I still have a thousand questions. I, every single day when I open up the scriptures, I feel like all it does is reveals how much more I don't know about the scriptures. How much more I don't know about Jesus. The deeper I get into the intimacy of knowing Christ, the deeper I get, to, I get into how confusing and miraculous and, and divine you are and how mortal and how, 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 how uh, wretched and wicked I am at the same time. Like the more I see him, the more I see how much I need him. And this is so true in this story here. We have Martha, who again is well educated on, on the truth of the gospel, on the truth of what even Jesus is going to accomplish on the last day as he resurrects all the souls who believe in him. But here she's kind of struggling a little bit with, I know that's going to come, but what are you about to do right now? He's been dead for four days. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Interesting question. Why did Jesus yell? Why did Jesus yell? Like, Lazarus is dead, right? I mean, last time I checked, dead people don't hear anything. So why yell? 
Like we know that, that God with, with a word created everything into existence. We know that Jesus and his, and, his, and his thoughts and his existence holds everything together, sustains all things. I'm up here being able to speak with, with glands and with muscles and, and this and that because Jesus is thinking that. Like Jesus is literally the essence by which all things are sustained. And so this man, Lazarus, in the tomb, all Jesus has to do is just think it up. Lazarus, come out. Why yell? What was the main point in the beginning? Let me go there so that who would believe? So that they would believe. This wasn't just for Lazarus to be physically risen from the grave. This is also for those around him to be spiritually raised from the dead. He's yelling so that they may believe that the Father sent them sent him. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. This event wasn't just for Lazarus to come back from the dead physically, but also for all those who were present to come back from the dead spiritually. This is Jesus revealing to us, I'm sovereign. And not like just in control of a region or a state, like I'm the sovereign. I'm in control of, of everything that is in existence, including the physical dead and the spiritual dead. And here's how I want to finish this sermon out. There are two types of people in our world, and I believe even in a room this size, it's easy to say that there are two types of people in this room. There are those types of people who are physically alive but spiritually dead. And then there are those who are physically dead or dying, we'll say, and spiritually alive. And what Jesus is saying here in this story, and I'll flesh that out a little bit more, by physically alive, I mean we're placing hope in physical realm. We're placing hope in how much money we make. We're placing hope in our careers and our job. We're placing hope in, in our uh, relationships that we have. We're, we're placing hope in God's stuff, right? Like he created everything for us to enjoy. And so we're, we're loving that over God. We're placing hope in that over God. This is the Romans 1 that we've, we've sacrificed worshiping creator in order to worship creation. So we're, we're choosing to physically be alive in what we have. However, we sacrifice the spiritual realm. We sacrifice our soul because we're trying to deal with the physical. We're trying to live life that way. The Bible refers to these types of people as whitewashed tombs. Listen to it in Matthew 23, 27 through 28. And this doesn't even matter that it's scribes and Pharisees. Anybody can play it out in this. He says in verse 27, 8, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Like this to me is what I talk about, about the, the South. People who on the outside look like everything is together. They've got great marriages. They've got great kids. They wear their Sunday's best. They never miss a Sunday school class. Like they've got all their pens that are saying that, that they, you know, memorize more verses than anybody. So they know all the facts about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. They know him like a Facebook friend, but they don't know him personally, right? 
They kind of go through and hit his news feed as they skim through the scriptures, but they don't know him. So they're whitewashed tombs. This is what the world has to offer is increase more of what you already have that'll satisfy your soul. And the reality is, is the, like, all the stuff that we're trying to add in, that we're trying to apply to our lives is just the future stuff of garage sales and dumps, right? Like it's not ultimately going to satisfy. It just, it just numbs the soul temporarily. But that's what we long for. Mark 8, 34 through 37 puts it this way. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whomever would save his life will lose it. And what he's saying there is whoever puts hope in this physical life will ultimately spiritually die. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Whoever's willing to put to death the deeds of the physical realm will ultimately receive faith and life in Christ alone. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Like what is it worth for us to gain in everything in the physical realm and then ultimately at the end say, God, look at all my stuff. Can I, can I get in? Am I good? Can I, can I pay my way in? Absolutely not. Romans 8, 10 through 11 shows us how God takes someone who's physically dead or dying and makes them spiritually alive. Verse 10, it says, but if Christ is in you, although the body's dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the idea here is you've got physical death, you've got physical, like my body is dead because of sin. But yet if Christ comes in and dwells within me, the spirit who raised Christ from the dead that we're going to celebrate in two weeks, the spirit that raised him from the dead will also give life to my mortal bodies, which means he will also bring up my physical death. One day there will be a day in which this body that you have that is dying, like it doesn't matter how many Pilates you do, how much makeup you put on, like your body is dying, your body is waging war against you, it's breaking down, like you sleep and get injured, right? Like it's, it's going bad for you and it's only going to get worse. I'm sorry. But the reality is, is that God not only spiritually awakens us, but also promises us a new body, a glorified body that we will receive one day because of the fact that Jesus is not only the God over the spiritual realm, but he's also the God over the physical realm. And so there's hope for those who believe they are good, but yet are dead on the inside. Philippians 3, 3 through 11, and here's my closing passage. It says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, And then Paul goes on to kind of give a little story here. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Basically what Paul's saying there is, I have reason to live as if I was physically alive and able to put hope in my worldly status, whether it was wealth and possessions. Paul's saying nobody has experienced more gain in this world than I have. 
And so if there was a way to boast in that gain, he's saying, I would have more reason to boast. He goes on to give the list. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under law, blameless. What he's basically saying there is, of all the rules that we as the Jews have created, as we as Pharisees have taken the law of God and then added even that much more rules to it, he's saying, nobody has abided by those more than me. So when it comes to earning my salvation, when it comes to earning my righteousness, I am blameless. But then he goes on to say, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That rubbish in Greek literally means dung. Crap, if that helps you out. He's saying anything that I could gain in this world, that I could put hope in, I consider it as a dog's excrement on the, the, the sidewalk. That's what it means to me because I've now experienced Christ. I now know Christ. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's an important point to make that I think a lot of times we, we jump over is like sin has to, has to earn death. Like sin has to be paid. The punishment for sin has to be paid and Jesus ultimately pays that for us. Sin is placed on him and he ultimately pays that. And what Paul is saying is that my sins, my personal sins, my life, I have to become like Christ in his death. I have to take those sins and put them on Jesus and say, Jesus, pay it for me. And he ultimately does in his sacrifice on the cross. That I may know him in the power of of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible. And he's saying that in relation to his death comment, I'll go to whatever length Christ wants me to go so that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Guys, Christ became sin in order to put to death our physical realm. In order to put to death all the things that we put in, put place our hope in. Christ took that upon himself so that we may believe in the opportunity that he's given us to be spiritually awakened that leads to a physical awakening as well when he comes back in glory. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he who knew no sin became sin. Christ who knew no sin, Christ as righteousness, Christ as perfect and holy, Christ as God. That's his identity. 
We are born sinners, wretched, wicked, completely deserving of death. Christ became what we are. Christ took on our earthly form, took on our sin, placed it on his shoulders, placed it as his identity, and God poured out his wrath on Jesus in order to pay for the death that we deserved. Christ died. Christ took our punishment, took our shame, took our guilt, took all of it, placed it on himself so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we went from sinners to saints, bearing the image of our creator, bearing the image of the son of Jesus. And when God looks at us, he sees Jesus himself. That's what it means to be spiritually awakened is for us to see the fact that in the story, Jesus isn't just resurrecting a dead man and bringing him back from physical death, but he's also resurrecting spiritually those who are dead all around him. And we have to hear his word. We have to hear the gospel preached and proclaimed in order to receive and believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And the beautiful thing that we're gonna be celebrating with a party in two weeks is the fact that Jesus ultimately accomplished that. We don't have to figure it out on our own. He accomplished it. And he is so worth worshiping and adoring for eternity because of what he did. Let's pray. God, we, we come to you humbled because you are God, you are sovereign. God, you hold death in your hand. You hold it on a leash. And your authority tells it when it can rule and when it cannot. And God, we see in this story that it's not only something that is temporary, but it's something that you deal with for eternity when you tell death and you ultimately put it to death. And that's only accomplished because of your son Jesus and what he's done for us in his life, the perfect life that he lived that we could not live ourselves. And he died the death that we deserve because of sin. And he rose from the grave guaranteeing for us resurrection and life. And it's just placing faith, it's, pl it's placing trust, it's just believing, Jesus, you are who you say you are and you've done what you have said you've done. And so we honor you. We thank you for that. We worship you. In this next time of just reflection, God, I ask that you would just continue to move in our minds and in our hearts. I, I pray that you take this message and this truth from John chapter 11 and that you take it from our mind and move it to our hearts. Move it to our hearts to the place in which we can't do anything but sing praises to you. God, you're glorious and you deserve to be worshiped and honored. And so let's do that in this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. 
For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at